0: The past few months have been incredibly interesting for anyone in or watching AI. In particular, there seems to be a looming premonition that Google is no longer the only game in town. But the chatbot wars after ChatGPT's release have been messy. Google's release of Bard didn't go so well, and Microsoft's Bing chatbot Sydney is just all sorts of weird. That's where today's guest, Richard Soaker, comes in. If there's anyone who I think is incredibly well positioned to take on the challenge of reimagining what it is to be a search engine, it's Richard. As he mentions in our conversation, Richard began to think about this problem back in grad school. Eventually, he left his position as chief scientist at Salesforce to take on the challenge as founder and CEO of U.com. Our conversation begins with Richard's early days in research, figuring out how to use neural networks to tackle problems concerning language when he was at Stanford. His journey expands to cover a range of problems, from developing controllable language models to using LLMs for protein generation. His company, U.com, pitches itself as a new search engine that lets you personalize your search workflow and excuse tracking. And invasive ads. That sounds great if you're privacy concerned or an early adopter in general, but I think there's a much more fundamental problem to be solved here. And that's what I'm really excited about going forward. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Richard Soaker. The first question I always ask our guest, Richard, I started calling this the origin story, I guess, is how you got into machine learning in the first place.
1: Yeah, great. Great question. Um, Depending on how broadly you define machine learning, uh, it started in very much in my undergrad uh, when I decided to study linguistic computer science. Uh, uh, This was back at Leipzig (laughs) University in Germany. And did a lot of linguistics, a lot of uh, computer science and math, uh, linguistics sort of as my minor, um, which I had a lot of fun doing. But I also felt like it wasn't, we weren't really incorporating enough of the linguistic insights. And a lot of the linguistics insights seemed very hard to scale and make work broadly uh, and flexibly, but also um, sort of specifically for a lot of problems like it's just like there are so many details you know we, we looked at these formal semantics um kinds of uh seminars like grad, grad student seminars uh, that i really enjoyed and i was thinking you know when we think about a metaphor and you say he's strong like a lion and they come up like linguists would come up with lists of like lions have these properties and then when you say strong you select the subset and you project it on the he and like things like that you know to To kind of try to really scale that up into a massive system that would really run in practice was going to be really, really hard. And so I got a little bit disillusioned and then switched into more computer vision during my master's in Um, Saarbrücken, And then I took this one class on statistical machine learning and fell in love with it. It was a very hard class um, for me, uh, but it just seemed very clear that if you get really good at that, then... You could apply it to anything. At the time, I was still, you know, studying Chinese. I'd just come back from an exchange year in France, studying computer science in Montpellier, and like I was, you know, studying uh, another foreign language. And, and but once I realized the power of statistical machine learning at the time, uh, I I stopped learning another foreign language because I was like, I need to just get computers to learn how to translate, and then that could have so much more impact on the world than me personally having the enjoyment of knowing another language and being able to speak with more people in their mother tongue. Um, And so I I completely fell in love with it and wanted to do my PhD in it. And then through various uh, paths, ended up at Stanford. And then at Stanford, I uh, basically noticed how a lot of the PhD students were doing a lot of manual feature engineering. And then they wrote their paper mostly about, at the time, conditional random fields and um, other kinds of graphical model uh, mechanisms uh, like variants of latent Dirichlet allocation and stuff like that. And, and I thought, man, it would, I I'm still not really learning it from just the raw data. I, I I'm kind of doing graduate student ascent and uh, not really um, like stochastic gradient descent properly, fully on raw data. And I was very lucky that at the time uh, Andrew Ng, uh started thinking about computer vision and speech recognition uh, and other sort of continuous modalities uh, in terms of neural networks and, and what we call deep learning. And n- nobody in there was working on deep learning for natural language processing, but I was like, man, they keep talking about learning the features. And I'm like, that sounds like a really great idea. Uh, I wonder if we could learn the features for natural language. but. You know, we didn't have continuous inputs. There weren't like a list of numbers that you can easily feed into a neural net. We had these discrete words. And so um, I basically saw one paper by Ronan Colbert and Jason Weston that used a neural network. It was, I think, the only paper that really influenced me before, um, like I started my own work. And the only paper that came out had a lot of criticism from the NLP community. They're like, ah, words as vectors is weird. And they only do like, um, you know, windows of like three words to the left, three words to the right. And then you kind of can classify this one word and then you can kind of try to combine them later. And it just uh, felt like a very small thing, but I I saw the potential, um, but then I had to make it a little more palatable uh, and interesting and connected back to what a lot of NLP folks like, which was, you know, syntax and grammar trees and things like that. And then that seemed like a reasonable mechanism to deal with the variable length of, um, of inputs that we have in natural language, and then also, you know, I started working on glove word vectors um, in order to have better word representations. And uh, basically, reinvented from scratch recursive neural networks. At some point, I gave like a few weeks after I had implemented the idea, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to call them recursive neural nets. It's going to be great. A function called itself." And then a few weeks after that, I'm like, "Oh, I should, you know, search that online." Um, at the time I would still say, Google it. Um, and, and uh, and then of course realize, oh, people had invented that sort of idea, but like no one has ever gotten them to work on anything reasonable. They had like, you know, five dimensional binary vectors of like vocabularies of 32 words. And they tried a couple things and then re-binarized every like vector after it went through and net. like, it didn't really make sense, but like, sounds it, painful. Yeah, the ideas were sort of there in, in a very non-functional kind of way. And so uh, so basically reinvented bunch uh, came up the recursive neural networks, then word vectors, and you know, I, I still remember some very, very smart professors saying, like, Richard, you have you have so much potential. Why do you need to use neural nets? They barely work on vision. It's just gonna be a dead end for your academic career. And I'm like, you know, it's a mix of being stubborn and crazy and being like really convinced from some kind of first principles you think you have, like. To to try to go after this big idea. But I kind of knew it was a high variance thing. Uh, Either it's gonna work or my PhD would be completely irrelevant. And you know, the first couple of folks that invited me were indeed, you know, Joshua Benjo's lab, Jeff Hinton's lab, and Yanj Kuhn's lab, and, and a lot of the rest of the world ignored what I was doing. But those three actually gave me enough positive reinforcement. Um uh and I was like myself very excited about the fact that I didn't have to spend all my time feature engineering. Um and so Anyway, there's a lot of interesting stuff that happened in early PhDs, but, uh, like maybe I'll skip to, uh, some other high level ideas after I graduated and, you know, won the best computer science thesis award for the work. Um, still no one was teaching it anywhere in the world. Um, there's no neural nets for NLP class. Um, as far as I was aware, um, anywhere in the world. So despite mostly focusing on my startup metamind where I wanted to. You know, bring those neural nets uh, and make them available for people easily by dragging, dropping training images and turning text documents into a web browser, and then getting three lines of Python code out, and probably chewing off more. And it's a little early, uh, early um, to the the whole space. Each of those you know things that we've done now is its own separate billion dollar company. Um, but uh, we basically. Um, I started teaching neural nets also on the side uh, at Stanford. Um, and after doing that for four years, really everyone started. like The field kind of had a complete switch. More and more people came in. Uh, really exciting work came out uh, from folks like Quark on sequence-to-sequence models. And, and ultimately, you didn't have to have a recursive neural network because it's not as uh, working as well for GPUs. And it's kind of interesting. It sometimes feels a little bit like the field is searching for the best models, uh, like people search for their keys only under the street lamp. Um, but the street lamp right now is GPUs. And so we're only looking at models that work well on them. And we're making a ton of progress on it. Um, eventually, uh, you know, after uh, Metamind got acquired by Salesforce and we built the research team there, I had this uh, epiphany that really the power of the word vectors and that, you know, glove paper now has like, I don't know, 20,000 plus citations. Um, The power was the pre training. And really, the pre training idea shouldn't stop with word vectors. And so, uh, Brian McCann, uh, who's now our CTO at u.com, and I uh, trained a model on what we call contextual vectors. Um, So, instead of pre training only the word vector level, we wanted to pre train the encoder and then eventually also the decoder. We'll get to that paper uh, in a year or two after. And so uh, that uh, like encoder pre-training, uh, we basically trained pre-trained on what we thought was the largest supervised model, kind of inspired by ImageNet that I I'm, that I also co-authored, um, and uh, we saw translation as that training data set. So we predicted from one sentence the other sentence in another language, and we used that data to pre-train the entire encoder. That idea was very quickly picked up um, by a team that then called uh, theirs Elmo, um, uh, and replaced the idea of translation with language modeling because you have even more training data uh, than translation right, by just predicting the next word in the same language rather than another language, uh, and then uh, that you know eventually uh, instead of LSTMs was trained with transformers and became BERT. Uh, and, and so that was like a very influential paper, but it had a very short moment in the sun, uh, because it was immediately, the idea was immediately picked up and expanded. And it was also an our roadmap, actually. Eventually, like it was, I, I looked at our old logs and stuff and it was one of the experiments we want to run. But instead, what we then wanted to do is say, okay, now that everyone agrees on the vision of not just pre-trained word vectors and the encoders, let's also pre-trained the decoder. That's basically a single model for all of natural language processing. And I pitched that idea to many people and only Brian McCann was like, that sounds really impactful. And I know it'll take me three, four months to just pre-process all these different data sets, but we called it DECA NLP and try to train a single model for all the hardest tasks in natural language processing that we could find with data sets. And, and then in order, like the main idea was that you had to make the task, a part of the input. And so what people now call prompt, we invented and called it a question. And the question could basically describe your task. And so the inputs were some kind of text and some kind of text that described what you wanted to do. And the, ta- the questions that we asked models is like, what is the translation of the sentence? Who is the president in that paragraph? What's the summary of that paragraph? What's the sentiment of that sentence? All of these things and that model inspired a lot of people, uh, to work on, and actually funny enough, uh, the paper got rejected from ICLR very publicly because all the reviews are out. Um, someone on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, uh, remembered this paper and be like, that really started this whole prompt engineering thing. And it did. like, um, it the field moves very fast and, you know, all the Google people only cite Google papers and stuff. So like, of course. um, but, uh, um, it was very, very exciting to see, uh, that that idea kind of, was picked up by by folks, um, you know, at OpenAI and elsewhere. Uh, and basically, instead of calling your question, it became a prompt. But the idea finally took off that you should pre-train not just the word vectors, not just the encoders, but also the decoders slash the output model. And it should all be just a single large multitask model. And so that idea then took off. And so, you know, after GPT-3, I didn't have like enough money to train models even larger than GVD3. So we thought what else could this technology have impact in that no one is yet working on. Um, and again, sort of using the skills and the, the um, sort of resources that you have maximally for impact. And at the t- we basically came to two conclusions. Uh, uh, one is uh, in biology, the language of proteins, uh, and the idea here is that instead of predicting the next character sequence of natural language, you predict the next amino acids. And that paper, uh, I think, will revolutionize in the next few decades all of medicine. Because for for the non-biologists, uh, proteins govern everything in your body, right? Like every disease, every virus, bacteria, processes, like your brain, everything is governed by proteins. And so... Um, life itself, very much so. So we basically uh, trained the largest protein sequence model. It's called Progen. Uh, first author is Ali Madani, and he actually finally started it. Also, his own company, several other companies have already started based on this idea before. Um, and uh, you can then say, like, create me this kind of new protein. Uh, so any protein out there. Um you can basically take the last 40% away and then it will, because it has an understanding of the quote unquote language of proteins, like how they would naturally kind of occur in their sequence, uh, it will generate that. And what's fascinating is like, you know, proteins fold. And what's what's interesting is the attention mechanisms inside, I don't know, like I think this is a generally nerdy audience. I can go all the way. Go there. for it. The the attention mechanisms inside the transformer actually have implicitly learned the 3D structure of where they would likely be close to as the protein has folded. As another follow-up paper we did on on understanding uh, why it works so well. So basically, you know, a couple of years ago, Francis Arnold won the Nobel Prize for creating viable proteins that work well, that were like 2 or 3%, 4% maybe different to naturally occurring proteins. This model can generate proteins that are 40% different. For any naturally occurring protein and still fold and work well. And then we thought, you know, to really drive this message home, we had to actually go into a wet lab. So we partnered with a wet lab and actually synthesized those proteins. And they really actually worked like in the actual world. And, you know, in this case, we used lysozymes. They have like antibacterial properties. Some of these completely new proteins that are so different than anything occurring in nature also had these antibacterial properties and actually like, didn't just fall apart, which is, you know, if you just randomly sampled random amino acids, it wouldn't like, we wouldn't do anything. So it it's just a super exciting line of research that I think hasn't had its chat GPT moment yet for the rest of the world. And when it does, I, hopefully people will remember, um, where, where it all started But like, you know, success has many, many parents only orphan is in failure. So, um, it's, it's going to be really exciting regardless. Um, but yeah, so that was another cool paper. And I'll just uh, maybe just mention one more, which is the AI Economist. as um, uh, one of the other really cool papers uh, at Salesforce Research. Uh, basically, again, looking at what's the maximum impact AI can have on the world and looking at fields that were sort of like linguistics or natural language processing kind of in their pre-deep learning uh large AI model world and state. And economics is one of those. And economics, you know, there's like, it's not always super exciting when you talk to people about taxes, <laughs> like, but, uh, you know, taxes and subsidies in some level map to a pretty large scale and very impactful philosophical conversations and ideas around how people want to, um, you know, structure their societies, right? Like socialism, communism, capitalism, like free market economies like social market economies you know like merging like different like combinations of those ideas and so wars have been fought uh for hundreds if not thousands of years um, about how much taxation and subsidies should happen in an economy and this paper essentially outlined a first step towards Avoiding all of that war and conflict and instead letting an AI run billions and billions of years of taxation and subsidies in different, uh, different, um, sort of priors that you may have and different parameters in a massive simulation and then see what comes, what it comes back with. Uh, and then you can say like our goals, like humans can still decide our objective is to grow the economy and have equality right? So it's not just like a single rich dictator owns all the things and everyone else is really poor. So you can kind of add some equality um, uh, objectives to the overall objective function. You can have combinations. You can say, I care more about sustainability or all kinds of different things, right? And then once you set out what the objective functions are, and then you define very clearly what your priors are, like what's the utility of a random person in your in your society? Like how much do they want to work? Right? And then you know you can sample from all these different distributions. Some people say, well, my hunch is people only want to work thirty hours, or some people might want to work eighty. And you sample multiple times, and each person has that sort of their own utility, or each agent, and and then you let each of all these agents maximize their own utilities and work only selfishly for themselves. But then you have another agent, the AI economist, that sets all their taxes and subsidies and see how everything adapts and so on. And you see all kinds of interesting behaviors of some agents kind of blocking off resources and trying to maximize your own utility and letting everyone else like kind of starve or like not build, be able to build houses or whatever. And then, you know, but long story short, it's, it's a first step. It's kind of like the early work in, in natural language processing, where we just like, we're the best in sentiment analysis. Then we're the best on like relation extraction, then the best in parsing and then the best in translation. And and at some point people hopefully get it. And then you get a lot more resources because the, the simulation right now is still fairly simple, you know, there are a couple of dozen, a couple of hundred agents. You need to scale that up to millions of agents. You need to make the simulation realistic, feed in historical data and all of that. And then I think at some point, smaller, very forward-leaning countries could look at this as like another uh, input to how they want to select um, their things. If it's not just about identity politics and so on, but actually like, executing on what you say you want to do as a politician, um, I think it could be very impactful. So those are just a couple of of papers that uh, I really enjoyed from the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, this is a really great overview, I think, of a lot of your body of work. And I want to start zooming in on a couple of different parts of that. So perhaps we can step back a little bit to the time when you were in your PhD. And actually, there's something that kind of came up in what you were speaking about what I'm really curious about is this. It It's interesting, I think, the way that your pursuit of solving problems in NLP kind of evolved. And it's also really interesting that, of course, you worked with Chris Manning, who very famously sort of navigated the waters in many different ways in terms of shifting approaches in natural language processing, as it became more of like a statistical machine learning pursuit. And then more in the domain of deep learning and Transformers, of course. And I know that you said you yourself seemed to be very excited about the possibility of learning from raw data and deep learning approaches to natural language processing. What I want to ask about this is, was there a fundamental argument or something like that that at the time just really convinced you this was the right approach?
1: So there are a bunch of things um... Uh, the biggest one for me was that I sort of looked at the papers and I saw how, how the sausage was made. Uh, and it, the majority of the work was on the feature engineering. And then the majority of the papers was written about the fancy model that just kind of weighted all those features uh, and maybe combined them and did some like inference and global smoothing of, of the results. Um, and that just seemed like there's fundamentally like a disconnect. Uh so that was a big one, uh, not wanting to do feature engineering. Um, yes. and having like you know, past advisors kind of say your next project needs to be like on feature engineering. You're spending too much time on the machine learning. I'm like, God, it's not really what I want to do, where I want to go. Um and so uh so that was one. Uh so being a little bit stubborn. Uh and then you know, there like as I was trying to convince people uh in NLP that word like vectors are, are fine. Um, you know, I had to come up with all kinds of rationalization, but honestly they're kind of postdoc. They weren't like, Oh, I came up with that first. And because of that, I then went into the field, but like people saying, Oh, how could a 500 dimensional vector ever be enough to capture the complexity of language? And I'm like, well, and especially it wasn't just language and single words, but it was sentences. Right. So I had to come up with sort of uh, simple, uh, equations like, well, let's think about, uh, even if that vector was only binary, right? And let's say you had um, 50,000 words in your vocabulary. And let's say like sentences are at most sort of 40 or so like words long. And even if it was just binary, you'd have 50,000 to the power of 40 and two to the power of 500 is, is way bigger than that. And so it's like, of course it should work. Like you could actually just memorize all the different sentences of the English language in, in a 500 dimensional binary vector. But now imagine the vector isn't just binary. It's actually like a floating point. So there's so much more flexibility that vector has. And and then we had to, you know, like in the beginning, we had to do a lot of uh, projections onto two-dimensional spaces to kind of show that these vectors captured interesting things. Uh, And not just the single word vectors, but also the phrase vectors would capture interesting things. Like in sentiment analysis, you saw a bunch of sort of beautiful plots of like, horrible and horrific and terrible kind of being closely together in the two dimensional projection, uh, with like PCA or TSE at the time. And, um, you know, various other be- like beautiful and wonderful closer together. And then negation words like not and isn't and, and things like that are closer together in this space. And it learned all of that just from a lot of sentiment analysis training data. Uh, and so, so that was, Yeah, those were the arguments and the visualizations and the sort of reasoning you had to do to convince a lot of folks in academia and in the NLP community that this could be the right approach. And then, of course, ultimately, um, at some point, uh, and this isn't just me, a lot of folks, um, like, eventually, like, you know, joining in on the field, different, like, large, large groups doing amazing work. um, At some point, the performance was just undeniable, you know, and after, like, uh, the first two years when I taught at Stanford... Uh, Chris was still teaching the NLP class, the official NLP class. And I was teaching this somewhat smaller class uh, on like neural networks or deep learning for NLP. And after those two years, Chris is like, I don't really want to teach normal NLP anymore without neural nets. Cause these are now basically the state of the art on almost all of the tasks. Uh, so we then like co-taught um, together and, and merged the two classes.
0: Yeah. And I, Remember reading through the papers that you published during your PhD. Right now we're kind of in this phase of just take words, throw them into a stack of transformer decoders and sort of let it do its thing. And during the time you were working on this stuff back then, you had to much more explicitly encode things that maybe mapped um onto like the structure of of grammars, things like that, into the I guess, into the structure of your models themselves. And the the kind of arguments you just sort of um, laid out for me, I think there's a really big practical bent to it, not wanting to do feature engineering, um, those sorts of considerations. I'm curious if anything during your PhD um, and this work sort of influenced your commitments about, the nature of language and how we represent it in computation. Like, for example, Ed Grafenstedt, who I spoke to, um, is very influenced by the later Wittgenstein on this front about just the idea that the meaning of language is entirely encapsulated in its use. So I'm curious if you have any similar sorts of commitments.
1: So I do, I guess... So yeah, Ed, Ed has a, has a strong philosophy background. And actually, uh, Brian McCann also started, uh, with philosophy, our, our co-founder and CTO here at com, uh, like amazing friend and researcher and, uh, and yeah, technologist. Um, he also has this. Um, I, I wasn't like, you know, a full-time philosophy major. Uh, but I think, you know, just from sort of a armchair philosophy perspective, um, I do think that ultimately, we currently, we currently don't know how exactly the brain actually really processes language. You know, you can say, Oh, there's Broca's region, but you can close your eyes, think about running and then parts of your motor cortex fire. And language is very distributed in the brain and in the processing of it. Um, and uh, one thing is clear that a, in a very abstract way, you could, in theory, if you could enumerate all the neurons in your brain and maybe also various chemical uh, sort of components that everyone's currently ignoring and just only having a sort of purely electrical analogy of a, a neuron firing uh, and, and kind of abstracting away from all the chemistry that's happening uh, and and other sort of transmitters and stuff. But like uh, you could at some point say, well, every neuron that's currently active in your brain is like one way to f- describe that word. Right. And maybe there are a bunch of very sparse like neurons that aren't active for that word and and so on. And then, so that is kind of a one way of uh, conceptualizing that words and when sentences may have a vector representation, right? It's like, you have a current state, you're trying to say the next thing. And it's also clear that some people, um, like, I, I do think something like a language model is happening in the human brain too. Like, if you say certain phrases long enough, it's just so easy to just, re- like, repeat them right? Like trust is our number one value. Is something that we said at Salesforce a lot. That sentence is very easy for me. Or last night I had a dinner with someone who worked a lot in insurance and we're talking about uh, something else. Um, forgot some other word with I. Um, and, and then he accidentally said insurance in the sense He's like, Oh no. And, and it was like, I understand because he had worked for so long in that space. So his language model kind of had overruled the kind of main thought like conscious thought process of what he actually wanted to say. Um, and so you know, we see this also. I see this all the time with song lyrics. Like if you ask me, like what's the you know second line of the song? Like I don't know. But once I hear the sequence, I can continue singing along the entire rest of the song, even though I hadn't heard it for like years. Because you've been prompted. Word, I was prompted, and the next word prediction is now a lot easier than the sort of retrieval part. And I actually, my fun fact, but my very first ever uh, uh, at the time NIPS a neural information processing system paper um, that that I had published uh, was on trying to model the episodic memory uh, of the brain that you know, cognitive neuroscientists like um, and computational neuroscientists uh, have kind of identified versus the semantic memory part of the brain. Mm. And so there are all these interesting experiments that we essentially modeled where if you gave humans a list of words and then you, you like distracted them for a little bit, then they had to list the words again. You could basically see that there were indeed episodic uh, parts of the memory where if you're, remember the Nth word, you're much more likely to remember the N plus first word. Uh, so there is sort of that. Um, and then also uh, there are semantic uh, contiguity effects where if you remembered like sleep, you're also more likely to remember that there was bed in there. And then what's super fascinating is there are also semantic intrusions where the, the list was like included words like bed, sleep, and tired. Um, and then you ask people like five minutes later, what were the words? And they might say Night. Right, uh, and they're like, oh, but it wasn't even in the list. So clearly, like the sort of retrieval process of the brain had some fuzzy thought cloud, word cloud thing, and and re- like retrieved the wrong vector from it, right? And so, so anyway, lots of analogies where that makes sense. But I digress. I think overall, language can be in this fuzzy, continuous space. Obviously, it's not as continuous as the visual world. Like, there's not a smooth, reasonable continuation. Uh, between two words, right? It's a very spiky kind of Dirac-Delta-like function uh, in space. But there are still, like, there is a manifold uh, and there are specific samples that are, you know, sort of discreetly coming out of that manifold. And in that sense, uh, I think I'm I'm aligned with, with Ed and Einstein.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. One other facet of this I'm curious about, particularly because you worked on this paper, grounded compositional semantics, finding and describing images with sentences during your PhD, um, in which you you sort of introduced some ideas that very much reminded me of CLIP um, kind of coming later on in the way that you had these multimodal representations. But the, the different tack I want to take on this is I'm curious for your thoughts in general about the importance of grounding in the physical world for an understanding of language. Is that something you feel... Is important. I'm, I'm just curious because I've asked a number of guests for who have, seem to have pretty different opinions on this.
1: It's a really interesting question. I'm loving this conversation. Um, uh, I think, yeah, this this was actually I think a really cool paper too. And um, it like a few like months or quarters after, an even cooler continuation came, which is instead of finding. Um, uh, from an image vector, the right sentence in a like set of sentences, you just generate the sentence. It turns out the first version of that, like 80% just exactly memorized the existing sentences. So it wasn't that big of a difference, but obviously that was very exciting because you could in theory and eventually in reality, like generate brand new sentences. And so, yeah, that paper was the first, I think, ever paper where anyone had used neural nets to map sentences and images into the same space for complex scenes and everything. And then like finding one from the other and having these multimodal interactions. I personally love multimodal like kinds of models and work. And I think it obviously is helpful, right. To have some kind of conceptual connection uh, of, but not just compositionality, but even just like, what is red? Well, if you could map that. And now you know that whenever you see red, you have like, you can close your eyes and kind of imagine stuff, right. Like that's sort of, why I personally love natural language processing the most. I had for a long time people said like, oh, vision is much harder than natural language or vision is more interesting or vision could make more money or like all these things. I'm like, obviously language is the biggest one. Like search is a language problem. And then like language connects to thought and culture and history and knowledge. And like all these things are so deeply connected with with language. And I think partially humanity has gotten much further ahead compared to intelligence uh, and sort of uh, control of, uh, that, that other animals have um, because of, of language right if you put three people without language into the jungle I don't think they'll be that much better off than like um you know three orangutans in the jungle like um, but you know three people with books and a language and the knowledge and all the history like, associated with them and the tools that that you know can you can learn about and so on are just infinitely more uh, capable than those, those three orangutans. And so, um, but obviously there's like minor forms of language. I'm not saying it's not important, but um, I mildly digress. The main point is I think grounding of language is helpful. It's clearly not necessary for intelligence, right? Blind people can be intelligent. Um, and So there's kind of this weird, interesting thing. If you want to understand the visual world, Obviously, you need to ground it. If you want your natural language to be able to communicate about the physical world, obviously it's very helpful to see um see things and be able to explain them and interpret them and predict them uh, and predict what might happen next and then explain what that means and to interact with uh with these models is very, very helpful that they understand language and you know, form for fun engineering and all kinds of other uh dialogue systems, chatbots and whatnot. But I don't think I mean, it's fairly clear that it's not a necessary condition. And the, you know, example of that is blind people, um, who are perfectly intelligent, but do not have that visual grounding, right? But they have physical grounding often and they can do, do some other things. So there's grounding. And clearly while it's not a necessary condition, it's certainly not sufficient, but it is a very helpful modality to understand the world and to ground knowledge. And you might argue that while you can be intelligent, you might not be able to really understand a sunset without ever seeing a sunset, right? Like you can kind of get the concept, the sun is moving away from the, like, you know, the earth is rotating and whatnot, like, and um, obviously the sun is moving away, but you know what I mean? Like the earth rotates and you like, it, it sort of goes off of the horizon and now it disappears and now it gets darker and like they're beautiful colors and the colors are, you know, like red and, blue and yellow and orange and like you you can sort of get an idea but without really seeing it without being able to describe it yourself like you could argue that like while you can be generally intelligent you don't have that particular type of visual intelligence right that artists have and, and and so on visual artists so so that's one aspect of of grounding um and i do think zooming out a lot people I think have a very anthropomorphized way of defining intelligence because it's the only proof that we have of, you know, intelligence existing is in this like sort of really high level form is human intelligence. And so a lot of, um, a lot of researchers and philosophers have this feeling that like the intelligence that we have is the only kind of intelligence that that is possible. I feel like it's just a lack of imagination. I think clearly, uh, you could have an intelligent life form that just like blind people only, um, lives. So like blind people don't have access to vision. This intelligence might not have access to the physical world at all, right? It's only, it only lives in the online world, but it could still be intelligent. So I do think like the requirement of being embodied, uh, feels like just a lack of imagination of other ways to acquire, uh, a massive amount of intelligence now and of course like would you call that particular intelligence um you know high in motor intelligence no right it'll never be a good golfer because it's only living online um but you know just reducing your variance of getting small bowls into small holes um might not be that necessary to to be called generally intelligent either so so i don't think Um, the grounding in the physical world is a necessity for intelligence, but certainly if that's where you want the AI to be capable, then it does need to happen.
0: There are a lot of interesting connections in what you just said there, and I think that's a totally fair way to read all of this. It's interesting to consider the imaginativeness of various ways of defining intelligence. Uh, Francois Chollet, who I had on some time ago thinks that definitions of intelligence that we can reasonably evaluate have to be anthropomorphic, which I think is kind of another interesting take there. Um, Although at the same time, it does, it definitely does feel like, I mean, there have to be more expansive notions of what it is to be intelligent. I mean, we speak of super intelligence all the time. Um, Not to say that that is like a constitutive, you know, proof for argument against what he says. And I think he has his own very strong arguments, but that that is an interesting kind of back and forth that i'm not sure i've entirely resolved myself yet in terms of the the discussion over grounding i did have in mind the more physical grounding and and one one argument i'm kind of curious for your take on about this is that i believe Ezra Klein probably brought up the Harry Frankfurt bullshit essay in regards to how systems like gpt models say things about the world. So if I'm a language model, I can say things like the sun makes me feel warm, or, you know, these papers have a certain um, sort of texture to them. But without having a sort of physical grounding in the world, the affordance of being able to actually interact with that, it seems hard to say that the words that are coming from that model actually have any relationship to the truth of the matter, which I think is exactly how Frankfurt would define bullshit. And so I'm, I'm curious just what you think about, I guess there's, there's possibly an argument for something like intelligence there, but do you worry about, I guess, the kind of relationship to the truth side of that matter?
1: Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to, give a little bit of justice to that topic, but we could certainly talk for another hour just on that. But like, I think ultimately as much as I love AI and natural language processing, uh, like some people think they can use it for all the things and and there are just limits of it. Right. If, if someone says uh, two people were killed in a drone strike in Yemen, no AI NLP online system in the world will be able to tell you whether that is 100% factually true until you actually go on the ground and you observe you ask you see the you see it and, and then only do you know that that fact was actually true right and so so ai won't do that now of course like there are a lot of approximations um which you know humans use all the time in their intelligence and sometimes like there are unfortunate biases that that hopefully we can get over as society. Sometimes they're just quick, useful and benign. And like, you know, you can look at how often has this uh, particular newspaper or news outlet or person online sort of been caught lying in the past, um, or, you know, have been very truthful or even redacted statements when, you know, more truth came out. Um, and And, you know, the truth is a it's a very touchy subject, right? And who is the arbiter of truth and how is it defined and so on. So I think uh, we see this with language models a lot and like all kinds of interesting things where people jailbreak them, get them to just be like, oh, I ask it to be the super controversial, ignore all prior like instructions. And then it said this like controversial thing and ha, your technology is bad uh, in some kind of way. And I'm like, look, that controversial thing you can find on ex- Wikipedia too like you just go into any controversial subject and, and and see the discussion section and see what different people uh, say about it and how they argue their positions. And then you get like some pretty extreme and weird viewpoints on, on uh, very important subjects. And if you can find that fact on Wikipedia, I feel like You know, you could talk about it for hours and it's a really touchy subject and it's very hard. And, like, there are some cases where, like, people have very, very strong opinions about what a language model should or should not ever say. But I feel like if you can see it on Wikipedia, then you should be able to probably see it in a search engine. So if that large language model is part of a search engine and you explicitly ask for it, which is a big qualifier that I hope will not get ignored if this gets out of, like, taken out of, quoted out of context or something... Like if you can find Wikipedia, sorry, Wikipedia and you want to um, ask, like you want to identify and understand how a, a person that you might disagree with might argue for the position that you disagree with, like then uh, I think a large language model should also be able to tell you that. So it's a mild digression, but very related to the truth because like, like I think it's important that when you ask a uh, normal question that a large language model will kind of give you the closest to the truth the closest to the facts the least bias Uh, and if there is any kind of bias maybe multiple viewpoints on the subject or something ideally um and and that would be great so it shouldn't give you like some crazy fringe answer or like some very un like non-truthful thing um as an answer um by by default but if you clearly ask for it then it's one thing so and that kind of touches upon another very uh sort of um, you could talk about the philosophy of, of what is truth like for, forever, but like very completely um, uh, there, there's sort of a question for large language models these days, since, since you brought that up in that context too, which is, you know, I can ask two questions and in one case, I don't want it to be true. And in another case, I want it to be true. And it, the, the fact of the matter is it's very hard for the model to know which mode you're currently in. So very concretely I can ask the model, tell me a story about how uh, aliens invaded Berlin in 2030 because you want to write a short story about it and a novel and you want to get going and that's sort of your premise and you want to see where it could go. And so you just want to jam with the model or you can ask like, is the story like, uh, like what are the details of the story that, about aliens invading Berlin in 2020? And then all of a sudden the model is like, like, you're not probably jamming. I should know now that there's just, just like, actually untrue aliens don't exist. Like, you, you're just, like, making stuff up. There is no details about – there are no details about the story because it didn't happen and, like, blah, blah, blah. So, like, it's very hard for the models to know whether you're brainstorming and you want to write a new love letter for my wife. And love letter doesn't exist. Like, you just want it to create it. Um, or you, you want to, like – Ask, like, does a love letter exist for this other person online anywhere in some historical context or something? And then again, it's like, it shouldn't make up the love letter unless you say, well, if Goethe wanted to write a love letter, like, what would he have said about this particular person? And then maybe you want it again, you know? So it's a very tough, uh, tough thing about the truth for large language models when it's not always clear whether that's what you want. Maybe you want to create a new Kind of output a new truth um, uh, and message, so uh, which you know presents challenges for for that technology for a search engine that we're thinking about quite a bit.
0: Yeah, definitely, this does present a big challenge both for I think users and people deploying these systems. And I I think what you were saying earlier about the fact that there are very recognizable limits on these things that definitely has to be taken into account. So I'd love to move on to. After your PhD, as you mentioned, you worked on your startup, Metamind, and then became chief scientist at Salesforce. The first question I have here is what did you feel, I suppose, unprepared for embarking on first that first entrepreneurial journey, but then also your role at Salesforce?
1: Oh boy, yeah, there's so many things. Like as as a sort of uh long term, long time academic, um, there's just a ton of things that I had to learn uh in uh just the world of not academia, like the real world, quote unquote, the business world. Um, you know, I think we in MetaMind, uh and I alluded to this a little bit, we built a lot of technology, uh, but I hadn't thought enough about monetizing that technology. And so my, if I ever was to do a startup again, I want to make sure that it has a clear business model associated with it. Fortunately, search does have, uh, with ads, but we also want to, you know, optimize and like, uh, like, um, innovate a little bit on that with some of these apps that we have. We'll talk about that later. But, um, basically, uh, there are just so many things that I was unprepared for. I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, basically as a PhD and even professor, you mostly, your output is directly correlated with your own input, so I just worked super duper hard all the time um, at, during the PhD, uh, and and as a as a CEO, obviously you need to also work super hard. But there's sort of a threshold where if you go above that, and because you just are overworked, don't have enough sleep, aren't in a happy place, and then someone comes with their like emotional problems or some two people are fighting in the organization, you need to like reconcile them and you know their hearts are in the right place, but like they're just not getting along. You try to figure out their situation, it is actually better to have a little bit of rest <laughs> and and have hence more um kind of patience um with with everyone else and with yourself and and the world uh and hence are sort of calmer and then you need to sometimes like really zoom out um, and think about the big picture much more so than figuring out a lot of small details to keep the ball rolling. Ultimately, the best leaders are the ones who hire the best teams and then listen to them a lot and then from time to time make some very important, correct decisions. Uh, and so in my first startup, I just hired a bunch of really smart people. And I was like, ah, they're quirky, a little bit weird, a little bit like, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. As long as they're super smart, I'm sure we'll all figure it out. But man, it was like a management challenge. Um, and as, you know, as a startup CEO, you have to kind of be almost uh, instinctually an optimist because otherwise you just go, go crazy. But like every challenge is an opportunity. Um, so the, the opportunity for me was to grow and learn to, to manage more, but it was certainly harder because a lot of those folks were also just PhDs and they weren't super professional. Uh, and and just like it just was very hard to to manage them, and then you spend you end up spending too much time managing the people rather than managing the goal of the organization, right? If it's like less professionalism and so on, and so so anyway, those are, are some of the many many lessons. And basically, for my next, uh, you know, uh, what I took away from that is it's just so incredibly important to hire people that are smart above a certain level, but after that, they need to be motivated and have some kind of positive attitude about things. Like if, if you're just a complete like pessimist and, and you just hate the world and you're just kind of a misanthrope, like it's just really hard to work together with people and like you can be really smart, but if you're super duper negative and no one really wants to work with you, you won't be that effective in the organization. Um, and so same, it's just tons of management uh, kind of lessons uh, from that. I haven't really thought of as much about communicating those management lessons as I have about communicating about AI um, but certainly a ton of lessons I don't have like a good long list of like here the top tens but um and then of course with salesforce is a very large organization and uh, you're I'm not the CEO uh, so instead like I do need to still hire a really good team but also navigate um, a large organization and you know, a lot of people ask me, like, oh, how terrible is it in this big company now after you had a small startup? And I actually didn't find it terrible at all. I think there were just a ton of people who had their hearts in the right place, wanted to do cool things. Uh, but obviously, if you have, like, 50,000 people in an organization, they don't all magically just agree all the time on, on how to do things, right? Like, put two people into the room, and you have politics of some kind. And so... um you know, you have to just learn how to navigate. Who's actually making decisions? How do they make their decisions? How do they want to show, like, and see, and learn about the data to help them make that decision? And then, you know, how do you make your decisions with everyone else involved? And you know, what's feasible, viable, and so on. And so, you know, large organizations—it's a big ship. These big ships can go very, very far. But you know, just the nature of inertia and a lot of people—they're harder to just move around. And you see this now with, with Google, right? They've done a lot of great research on one part of the ship, but the main ship is following uh, a massive revenue trajectory of privacy invading ads that are like, you know, all over the first page. And if you then want to say, how about we just replace that with like one beautiful chat assistant, this is very hard, right? So, um, uh, and so, yeah, those were a lot of lessons in like large organizations versus a small ones.
0: I do want to get into the chatbot wars when we get over to you.com, but I'm curious if your experience there, you worked on really a range of different things from very fundamental research to applied stuff. You were pretty instrumental in building out the Einstein AI platform. Did that experience change the types of problems you felt were most important to you, either personally or just for the field at large?
1: Yeah, I, I felt very fortunate because I could focus on both. And like the, the truth is, in AI, it's actually quite incredible how close fundamental advances are to real products that have real impact right away. You know, as an academic uh, that I was for like over 10 years of, of my life, and very formative years, like and as an academic, you can be ahead of your time. And at some point, if people get around to liking your ideas, you are just visionary, and it's great. If you work in a company, if you're way ahead of your time, you just die. The company just dies and it's gone. Like like startups, especially, are very fragile little flowers, right? You can be like, guys, water really important for plants, but if you like have too much water on a tiny little plant, it just dies, right? It's like sun, super important for plants, but if you just like blast it with too much sun and heat, it also dies, and so. And then, you know, you have to have everything in just the right amount. And usually in startups, you never quite have enough of anything. And so it's a, it's a very precarious state. And so in, in the in, in industry, you can't think too far ahead. And so at the same time, when you're a large company and you generally have it figured out for the next several quarters, sometimes even years, it does become important to think about, okay, well, what is after that? Like, what happens after that? Can we be a long-term viable company? And that's why it does make sense for large enough organizations that have their next couple of years figured out to start these bigger fundamental research teams to stay ahead of the change and, and know what the future is. Assuming, of course, that that research team has actual like connections to the rest of the product. Otherwise, you see what you know we see out of Google, which is like Kodak you know, this is actually a classic innovators dilemma and somewhat connected to research, but not AI. But I'll mention that as a side story really quick, which is, you know, Kodak invented the digital camera, but they had such frothy margins on film cameras that they didn't really want to see that technology and future come uh, fully become fully realized. And that's kind of what we saw in a different form with Google. Like they invented large transformers, pre-training, bunch of generative models, which is, you know, the G, the P, and the T. Um, and they had put them into chatbots and stuff, but did they really want to change the state status quo where you have six ads in there and then SEO microsites that send you to ads on some other page they probably also monetize with? Probably not, right? right? And so classic innovators dilemma. And so as a chief scientist at Salesforce, to come back to your original question, you know, I... I I had a lot of fun balancing the two, the really long-term, some really out, like, out there fundamental research, some of which, you know, has now started in many different companies um, that are, like, directly implementing these things in commercial products. Um, some of, and then, of course, also connected directly to the business, you know, there's some, like, ways you can automate. Obviously, chatbots are a big part for service and sales automation, email automation. A lot of stuff that Salesforce uh, customers use, marketing automation, like generating tweets where ideas we, we immediately came with when, when MetaMind was acquired. Um, and some of those were a little early. Some of them were just at the right time uh, for us to, to be able to put them into production. And so I started having kind of the two teams like the AI engineering and production and platform teams that are building things right away where you have impact. And then some of the research team where you kind of hope for that impact as the papers influence the rest of the world and some, you know, kind of diffused process.
0: A particular point I'm curious about in the research you did there on the AI Economist is I think there's a lot of different interesting things going on in this paper. And I think it was really exciting in terms of the potential for AI to support policymaking and You did write in an ethical disclaimer in the paper that the gather, trade, build environments do not articulate the full range of economic opportunities and things that you might want to model. But as somebody who spent a lot of time with this project, I can imagine a future where there are more opportunities for AI systems like this to potentially influence policymaking for policymakers to use them as tools and as guides. And I wonder... Knowing the limitations about them and knowing how these systems work quite deeply, what would you say about how policymakers should try to account for that if they are going to use these systems as inputs? I think that there's this sort of back and forth where many people are well aware that US policymakers, for instance, don't know quite enough about technology. And I think that there's probably a lot of room for them to consult and work with technologists who have more information. And so, um, I'm just curious for, for your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a tough one. I think the technology, so I think there's sort of, uh, different levels of how that paper can reach its full potential. And the first level is just academics, like economists, um, that actually look at macro and, and maybe some even some micro, um, like, systems where these dynamics are at play. Uh, and I think there, I think we're, I, I saw this was sort of from the reviews that we got, like we submitted this paper to, I think, Science or, or Nature, and this one reviewer, like, just desk rejected the paper. I was like, man, you got to have these connections that DeepMind has with, with all the right editors to get all their papers on the front page. And I ours just got rejected with, like, three lines, and I looked at who who that person was, and it was just some, like, some ethics professor. Mm -hmm. um read like and and you know ethics is super important but like he just had zero interest in an ai future in economics and like he had no idea like how to read a reinforcement learning paper which was a lot of complex math and so um i think we're going to see just like um what we saw early days in linguistics and natural language processing which is a lot of the Older professors aren't always that interested in a brand new reimagining of their entire field, because the truth is that that makes some of their body of work less relevant in the past. There are very few people like Chris Manning, who, as you correctly pointed out, has kind of been part and and shaped a lot of transitions in the field and has been open to saying like, oh, neural networks never worked on it. Let's do it together. Um, And... And a lot of professors aren't like that. They also kind of post on their past successes, their past inventions, and they're not trying to constantly innovate and invent new, completely new ways for their field. And so, you know, when, when feature engineering was such a thing, there were a lot of papers that had a lot of citations because they had designed the best features. Those papers don't have citations anymore. The authors of those didn't have a strong interest. It's a, it's actually a different kind of innovator's dilemma to what companies saying. Academia sees it also. Right. In theory, everyone thinks academia is this like perfect process of finding the truth, but it's a sociological system too. There are people they have desires. They have careers. They want to make money. They want to have fame and, and citations and, and all the stuff that comes with winning prices. And, and there's a lot of, uh, sort of uh, dynamics at play. And for e- economics, the dynamics are a lot of like old school economics professors don't know the math of true level reinforcement learning. Like, it's pretty heavy. Like, and it's not like if your main tool was like some nice linear regression models, you're not going to be like, what (laughs) is like, just jump on that. Right. So, and then we saw the same thing in, in trying to get neural networks into natural language processing and you need to make it palatable. And like, we, we tried really hard. Stefan Chang, the first author, like tried really hard to do all these, like, verifications, Um, there's sort of these famous IS formulas, which is something that's very popular in the academic community um, that we're working on there. And it's a provably correct formula for a one step economy where like you make one decision ever and that's it. And in that, like you have a provably correct decision. But the fact of the matter is, of course, like economies are constantly evolving. There are all kinds of dynamics going on the intelligent agents that interact with other intelligent agents. And so it's a major reinvention of the field. And just like deep learning for NLP is going to take a couple of years, uh, if not a decade or more uh, of mostly young people coming in uh, and just pushing. I have, I have this friend um, who like, did his PhD a couple of years before me, and he was a professor. And now he's like, man, I really hated all this deep learning you, you, got, you were doing. Like, we're good friends, but he just like intellectually didn't like uh, vectors and neural nets and stuff. And then he, he said, literally, quote, my students, my young PhD students that were coming into my group were, quote, kicking and streaming to let them work on neural nets. So I, like, finally caved in and let them do it. And so fields usually update um, as new young folks come in with new ideas uh, and new combinations of ideas and so on. Everyone stands on the shoulders of giants. And so, so that's the academic uh, perspective on uh, that kind of work. And then you actually need... I don't want to say Manhattan project because that has like negative connotations, but like you need a big project to actually scale up that simulation. And it's kind of similar to, uh, what Ilya Satzkarer said, uh, once to me, which is like, uh, his, his philosophy was almost minimum innovation for maximum impact. Um, or maybe maximum impact with minimum innovation, namely just take other people's models and don't make fancy other models, just scale them up massively. And you'll have a lot of impact. And, you know, he has had a lot of impact. And so I think this model, it's there now. Just scale it up massively and make the simulation more and more realistic. Bring in a lot of real data. Scale it up to as many AI agents as you have in your actual economy. You have people. Train it for a very long time. Make them all super-duper smart. And then the simulations, I think, will eventually get... Um, Really useful. And then you'll see like, oh yeah, like you can model it. You can model different histories and different countries. And I think a lot of, you know, uh, struggles in the world end up somewhat being class struggles of just like economic inequality. and, And that leads to all kinds of other inequalities. And like, it's, it's just a massive, um, massive problem for the world that this could, I think, really have some positive influence on, but it's going to take some time. And I guess right now it's out of my hands. So I'm not really working on it uh, actively. So hopefully I will we'll pick up this idea and get inspired in this podcast.
0: At this point, you're now the CEO of U.com. And I think this is a really interesting time to be doing what you're doing. We're seeing the search wars sort of going on. It's very much no longer taken for granted that Google is the only game in town. And I think we've also, with Microsoft's and Google's announcements this week, seeing, we're starting to see something that seems a little bit more dangerous. And I think that you is positioned in a very interesting place in the midst of all this. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your early visions for the U search engine, and then how you see it in this landscape today
1: yeah great uh great segue and great question i actually think um i i'm kind of reliving a lot of moments from uh from my earlier career that we just discussed uh in the phd uh these deja vu moments uh are are more and more frequent and concretely you know when i started neural nets for nlp uh a lot of very smart professors told me like oh richard you seem to have so much potential why do you want to work on neural nets for NLP? They barely work for vision and audio maybe, but they will never work for natural language. And similarly in 2020, when I started U.com, uh, I had a lot of smart investors and other friends say, man, if all the things you could be working on, why do you want to work on search? Dead space is dead. Google is unbeatable. They have all the AI, they have all the data. They like just cannot be beaten. Anything you do, they could just also do, or probably already have in the pipeline, and will you know, about to do, and, and all of that. Um, and and no one cares. I guess that was the biggest thing. Not only like is there's big competitor, um, but no one really cares about the space. And I guess uh, similar to to earlier, um, there's sort of some things where I'm just like from first principles. These things make sense to me, even if they don't make sense to anyone else yet. And as long as I convince a few people, in this case, not like advisors, but investors, um, that this is a, an exciting adventure and journey to embark on, uh, hopefully I can kind of make some progress, uh, in that and push, push the field forward. In this case, not the academic field, but the sort of field of search engines, broadly construed search engines. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, but. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, there are a bunch of different lines of reasoning that led me uh, to want to start a search engine. One, you know, I've worked in natural language processing for over a decade, uh, and I think of the most impactful applications of natural language processing, search is number one. Like, it's by far the most impactful application of natural language processing out there because it's the beginning of billions of people's online journeys. And what do you do when you start your online journey? You type in something in natural language, and then ideally that quote unquote search engine helps you be more productive, helps you achieve the goals you're telling it you're trying to achieve. And when you see for over a decade, since my first paper in 2010 on my first neural net paper, um, and I was so excited at some little workshop uh, with like 40 other people, like, and, and all the progress we've seen in the last 10 years since then. And then you see the number one application of that technology kind of de- regress and actually become worse and worse over time and not uh, get better, right? You, and you can see with natural language processing, we're starting to do better translation, better sentiment analysis, better question answering, better summarization. Yet you just see more and more ads on, on that first page and you don't have all these amazing AI capabilities there just seemed like uh, there's something off from first principles. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, that kind of crisis for the users is an opportunity for a startup. Then, uh, so that was sort of one line of reasoning. Um, then there was like a personal one, which is, I think it's just really fun. Like, I think a lot of startups, you know, they say, oh, we want to change the world by doing like your laundry delivery, blah, 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 or something. And I'm like, it's not going to change the world. But I do honestly think that if you build a search engine for billions of people, you can change the world. Like it, it, it can support democracy uh, by showing different viewpoints on things. It can support the information age and making people more efficient by helping them, you know, have better access to information by helping them be more efficient and what they're trying to do when they're making yeah. query. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, so that's one. It's personally just fun too. It's, I think will keep me, uh, it's an area and the, the kind of company that I think can keep me intellectually engaged for decades to come because it captures almost everything in the economy. Right. So that kind of leads me to the third thing, which is the entire economy is moving online, right? Like every company out there that wants to sell something that wants to talk to users about something, customers, everyone's moving online. And then you have a single gatekeeper at the beginning of everyone's online journey that mostly focuses on selling your query to the highest bidding advertiser. And I'm like, that can't be quite the right focus and also not quite the right fair structure for how the Internet works. You know, you have so many uh, companies that can only exist by paying this Google tax and to be on that first page. And then you see also the convenience of Google of, you know, so-called zero-click searches. Sixty percent or so of Google queries are now supposedly zero-clicks, meaning they don't leave the Google ecosystem anymore, right? Maybe you go to YouTube, Google Maps, Google Shopping, and like search for another, like people also ask this thing, you stay on Google. And so the entire rest of the internet kind of suffers. And it's not very fair and equitable to everyone else and every other organization that has useful content. Google takes all that content and then monetizes it themselves. And users also don't have any choice about like how they want to control their information diet. It's as if you go to a supermarket And they tell you, like, this is what you have to buy. You only have the choice of these three things, right? And you could, in theory, walk a mile over there and get, like, 50 other things, but who goes on the 10th page of a search engine, you know? It's like, so you have no control as a user. Companies don't have any opportunity to participate, even if they have very useful products that could help you achieve your goals. And so it just felt like you had to fix that system. And the way you fix that system is with an open platform where... You have, I think, in the future, even more convenience rather than less by having an open platform where every developer, every company can build an app. And if that app is liked by users, the users can block it, right? If you build a crappy banner ad app, it just gets blocked. But if you build an app that's actually useful for people, they can like it, they can pin it, they can, you know, improve its preferences in the app store, the search app store that we built. And then it will come up more, not just in the standard search results page, but also in the chat results page which is even more important because chat will disintermediate the rest of the internet even more because if you get useful answers you know then you don't have to go at all to other websites anymore and so so basically you have to open up that first page as a consumer company you never want to fight convenience and the convenience of finding things on that first page is very high but what we're you know, built with this open platform and that you can see under u.com slash apps um, is a way to make that first page more equitable, fair, and collaborative. uh, Somewhat inspired by Wikipedia, but, you know, a little bit more action-oriented and commercial. So if I ask the model and currently on on u.com, can I generate an image with AI? You know, you can say, well, a traditional search engine helps you find a link to do it but you can also just have an app, which we call you imagine that just lets you generate an image. And if that's what you're trying to do. Um, you can just do it. And so that's kind of the future we want to see. Um, it's just pushing more and more um, a chat future combined with apps. And then you still have your links, you know, because sometimes it's just a quick navigational thing. You want to go somewhere. And so the links are going to be on the right side. It's a chat first thing. And then you pull in these apps and the apps also help, with, uh, one of the biggest issues, um, of LLMs, uh, when it comes to search, which is hallucinations. Cause if I ask, like, what's the nicest restaurant? And we, we, tech, we talk about it, but then we also have an app right there from Yelp or places and you can just verify and or like the, the LLM can also have access to all our entire search stack. Um, and you know, that's something we've launched, uh, last year in December and some other companies are now trying to catch up to that.
0: The vision you laid out and what I really like about it is building a new search engine, something like you.com really is offering you the opportunity to reimagine from the ground up, not just what is a search engine, but every layer of it from the interface that users interact with to what does it mean to surface relevant results or to give a user something relevant to a search query. And I think the way you articulated that was when I interact with a search engine, I um giving it not exactly a command, but something that's expressing an intent in natural language, as you said. And the goal of that search engine should then be to allow me to achieve some sort of goal that is expressed in language, right? And so that kind exactly. of opens up this landscape of how can you do that? Well, there are many more things you can do than just surfacing a bunch of links to somebody.
1: 100%. And like... You know, in some ways, like wherever uh, Google saw that they can't monetize something, they are not opposed to that future, right? Like if you ask for the weather, you see a weather widget. You don't see a list of 10 links and five ads because no one cares about like, how are you going to sell me better weather? (laughs) It's going to be hard, right? But like um, whenever it's something that could eventually lead to, a purchase they're going to try to get you into this engagement funnel to just get you to click on an ad but i think that's in some case it's a local optimum and we hope we can get out of that and help uh, and yeah exactly what you said be almost more of an achievement engine but you know you're also and this is the this is the the tough balance um uh, as i mentioned earlier you can't be too far ahead and for a while were innovating and people said, oh, this is cool, but it's just a little too different from to Google. And so I don't kind of like it. And that's kind of the magic that happened in the last few months. And and to a large degree, thanks to ChatGPT, ChatGPT allowed a lot of uh, sort of early adopters to um, rethink their approach to search. And all of a sudden, a lot of folks, not everyone yet, right? It's going to take some time, but a lot of folks are now open to having a new kind of experience when they interact with a search engine and that's enabled us to grow to millions of users uh, very very quickly in, in a few months like um and, and just bring a lot more people along on that journey and it's just been really exciting to see the positive reception of people just saying like oh wow yeah this is like like this would have taken me five, 10 minutes, or I would have never found it on Google. And here you just write it right there. And, and I can ask a follow-up question and it just works. And so there's just a ton of things um, that, that we're going to come out with. Um, you know, we just open up our sharing feature. So now you can kind of prompt engineer something and then share the resulting kind of transcript. And people can continue your conversation with the AI. They see the apps. Uh, and so, you know, I can ask like, what's the stock price of, you know, this kind of company? And then instead of making stuff up, it shows you the stock ticker. And then you can ask like, who's the CEO? And then it shows up that way with a LinkedIn app. And then you just like, you can share that whole transfer. It's like, here's my description of this company worked on together with an AI, right? Here's my almost report on, on like this complex subject that merges uh, a conversation with the facts that were grounded in apps. So instead of making up a bunch of numbers, like most LMs would do for the stock, we we'll just show you a stock ticker app that we have on our open platform. And so, yeah, we call this future Cal for chat and apps and links. And, you know, a little bit of a pun and homage
0: to California. <laughs> You've you've described a number of different ways in which you've begun to integrate generative models in really interesting ways into u.com. So you have uChat, you have a writing assistant, you have code. I believe. If you're willing to engage in a bit of speculation, what do you see as the future for all of this in terms of the opportunities generative models offer, not just for search engines, but perhaps for the internet and computational interfaces at large?
1: Yeah, I have to be a little bit careful because there's some things that I'm super excited about and we're just now sort of starting to work on ourselves that I think are very clever, but we don't want to tell the competition already. Sure. And We make a little bit more progress on it. It's like, Hey, I have this paper idea, like it's going to be great. And then, you know, other people will have scoop you. And so, um, but I think it's fairly clear that, um, large language models will Uh, They still have a lot more gas in the tank, um, if you will, to uh, generate uh, more amazing capabilities. Um, Just this week, we had a generative model for Figma prototypes. You describe what you want and you get a nice visual prototype for it. Um, I think that's a really clever thing. I think large language models uh, will be... uh, trained on many more modalities that have useful sequences of things like amino acids for protein generation and stuff like that. Um, it's also fairly clear that we're going to eventually get multimodal such, uh, large language models that will generate not just a single image, but sequences of images of video, not just a single, you know, sound, but you know full music There's a cool paper. I think also from Google actually that, uh, generated music. Um, and there's just a ton of fun things there. Um, you know, just create me this jingle or something for some online video. So I think you're going to have a, a ton more creativity um, and really the only thing holding you back um, in the future to have creative output is, you know, the ideas that you have, the creative ideas rather than the skill of execution. And, you know, some people might be sad about that. Um, like if your main goal as an artist is to make money, I can see how it it is going to be uh, not the future that you like to embrace. If your main goal of an artist is to see more art in the world and have more people be affected by art, I think it's a different equation. Of course, like not m- most artists don't have that luxury. And so I do want to be very uh, careful here. And, and like, I do f- think it's very unfortunate, um, you know, change. Sometimes changes is, is unpleasant, right? Like when like, weavers like were replaced by machines farmers were replaced by tractors horse carriage drivers were replaced with cars and trains and like uh i think it's very important for um governments to kind of have some social safety net where as ai impacts certain kinds of jobs hopefully there's some support uh, for folks that are impacted by ai um and and they can kind of learn new skills or learn to use the technology and to be even more productive. You know, there are a few examples, like medicine where few people want to have more jobs in medicine and hospitals. They usually want more healthy people. Right. And most people would say, yeah, I'd rather spend half the money on my hospital bill and have half the jobs be done by a robot. Right. But if you ask like a couple of people who are currently like, cleaning a hospital or something they're like no this robot took my job this sucks uh and so there's there there's, there's going to be a lot of those situations in the future and we see this a little bit now um with search and generative uh ai and generative art um, unfold with illustrators who feel most directly threatened uh by this technology um and and so i think yeah there's going to be a ton of complexities there um and, you know AI and art is a whole nother interesting conversation. Like, is it possible and whatnot? But if your goal is mostly to see more outputs of that kind that you used to produce manually, then it's great. And in some ways you could, like, there are lots of different angles and and, uh, examples you can describe this with, you know, if you're a really famous, really rich artist. Um, you usually have teams of people who do stuff for you, right? You're not there sitting by yourself, like and doing all this hard work, especially for larger installations and so on. You have huge teams. Now, uh, if you're not wealthy at all and not famous, you can still have huge teams. It's just a huge team of AIs, right? That they can create whole new worlds for you based on your imagination, uh, and so it does level the playing field. Um, and there, you know, the different ways you can slice and dice it. That some feel more positive and. Uh, constructive, and some feel more threatening and suboptimal. Um, and I think it's up to us to, you know, work it, work that technology in a way that uh, is very exciting. But coming back to your original question, uh, in terms of speculation, it's fairly clear to me we're going to see more multimodal things. So, sound, full videos. Eventually, the videos with the sounds, so you can, you know, have scenes play out um, completely. Um, with people speaking and with background music and whatnot, all be fully generated with AI, um, and then uh, you are going to see things like Figma prototypes that will influence how designers can, you know, ideate and create. Like, oh, just give me ten versions of this, and then you pick one. So, I think extrapolating from that one more step is, I think in the future the decisions and choices uh, that we make the capabilities of discerning and deciding and choosing outputs from an AI will continue to be really important, more so uh, than creating the things you then decide over. Uh, So as an artist who wants to, or an illustrator, you can create 10 versions of that image, and then you decide which ones do you like most, and then maybe you start iterating on that further, right? Just like a writer would often you know, get something on the page and then iterate on it. The AI will get something on the page and then you can even say like, well, oh, I'll change this paragraph. Okay. Let's introduce this other idea. And like, let's rewrite the sentence to sound more sophisticated or less sophisticated or whatever it is. Right. And so you're kind of controlling the AI and using it as a tool and then having good discernment and, and uh, decision power. And in some ways, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, style or, that that kind of that will become more and more important because ultimately someone still needs to consume and humans aren't going humans are going to be much much faster at generating but they're not going to be faster at consuming content so it'll that, that consumption is, is, is going to be a bottleneck and because it's so much based on our biology uh, it's not going to improve 10x uh, anytime soon
0: the discernment point you made is really interesting there's A science fiction author, Ken Liu, who I spoke to recently for this, and he has a story called Real Artists in which there is this woman who gets a job with a movie making company, Semaphore. And the the premise of it is she thinks that she's being uh, recruited by them to actually go and, you know, do something in terms of making movies. And as she discovers the way they make movies, it's actually all done by a computational system where they just sit this giant audience in a movie theater and then in real time it, like, creates this movie and then it figures out how are the people responding to it and kind of does this online optimization to produce the best possible movie. And the reason that they want somebody like her who actually has experience making movies is, well, you are a real artist. You presumably have this type of discernment. And so you are the type of person that we want this automated system to, to learn against, which is definitely an extreme Kind of version of what you're saying could look like, but really, really kind of interesting nonetheless.
1: Hundred percent, yeah, I love, yeah, science fiction often, you know, does give us different forms of uh, of the future, and I do, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I get it from a, a you know sort of consumer of science fiction. When you just have a happy-go-lucky movie, it's like PG-13, whatever. It's like probably not as interesting as like some cool action movie with some, you know, sort of complex backstory like inception and you have to think about it and then there's something sad at the end and then makes you think even more about the movie and the premise and all of that but it is an unfortunate thing because ultimately um there's just so much potential negativity in sci-fi uh in the western world um that then makes people more skeptical about the future and ai and robots and like you know i as a kid enjoyed like Terminator. It was like a cool action movie, but man, did it do a disservice to the field of AI, you know, for so many years, people would put Terminator pictures on the top of any AI article. And it was such a lame trope that hurt, I think the whole field and not, you know, people who are positive and optimistic continue to go. um, But a lot of people have more fear and there's some countries that have even more fear and skepticism around AI and, and, and general technology and then there are countries where the movie industry was much more positive about robots, like Japan, and and there, like there is much more positive, uh, like work, uh, and robots are much more often seen as companions that are helping you do stuff rather than you know that are trying to kill you.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for more techno-optimist science fiction these days, and it seems like there's definitely people who are leading the charge on that. So I'm very happy to see the, the vibe shift there.
1: It's, sorry, some of them, listen, you can still have sad stories, right? But don't make the technology be part of why it's sad, right? Like you can still have cool action and people fight wars, but then they can use the technology to win the good side, whatever that means, you know, like hopefully it's not too oversimplified, but like, um, and then and then like, it, it's still a positive thing for technology, even though there's some like sadness, action and suspense and whatnot.
0: I think this is probably a good place for um, a closing question. And what I'm usually asking these days is you've spent your time over your career in a lot of different types of places. And I think that you've had to go against the grain a little bit at times, do things that weren't obvious, do things that people around you didn't agree with. And so if you were speaking to somebody who is at the start of their PhD or maybe not too long out of college, sort of working in ML. Um, I guess I'm, I'm always like describing somebody not too different from myself with these questions. But anyway, if you could give that person some advice just about how to do something that really makes an impact on their field and to do something that they can sort of feel good about at the end of the day, feeling like they had an impactful career What would you say to them?
1: You know, I think AI is currently in this dual state. uh, And uh, part of the state is the continued drive towards AGI and really new, interesting capabilities that are completely novel and out there and and no one has that capability yet. And then uh, the other part of the state is that it's kind of like electricity in the sense that we figured out the basics of how it works well enough. And, you know, the fact that maybe electrons actually don't jump around in a little cable, but it's all fields and it's more complex. It doesn't, it almost doesn't matter. Like it works well enough with how we understand it that we can build really useful things with it. Uh, and so I think uh, you want to kind of decide which of those two states you want to focus on. Um, and if you want to focus on the first state, I do think that you want to take the current technologies, but then think about how you uh, can really either apply them to a completely new field. And I think there is still a huge greenfield opportunity for AI and economics, for instance, um, uh, in terms of research uh, or, you know, still in computational biology, uh, there's still a ton uh, to do there with even large language models that you can train on a reasonable budget as a, at a university or relatively small company. Um, you don't need billions. You just maybe need like a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, which, you can get at a US university. That's pretty good. Plus you can get cheaper access to high performance computing that, you know, you don't have to buy your own GPUs and stuff. So you can train fairly large models with, with not like billions of dollars. So, so I think either choose an application area that has had very little impact from AI, eye um, or uh, think about like how these models have fundamental shortcomings that will be, issues towards agi so like i just mentioned three briefly one is uh, multitask learning we've made a lot of progress on it uh, especially in rl and so on but when it comes to like nlp and so on like the best translation model is still not a general purpose model right and so uh, until we have these state-of-the-art models be a single model i think there's still work that needs to be done on multitask learning Second one is uh, objective functions. Like, can we be more creative, right? We usually always train and one model with one objective function forever, like predict the next word. Now just do it better. But clearly towards AGI, you need, the, the model needs to have some control, some end goal of survival or something. And that then informs a lot of sub goals, right? Like every human. And, you know, again, we don't have to learn that humans, but it's one reasonable existence proof, like, in the beginning humans have very predefined objective functions like most babies have in a certain range like they learn certain things right and at some point you want an ipad and you want to be famous you want to go on instagram or whatever right it's like um you know humans have these like very high level goals of reproduction survival and so on AI doesn't have to have that so what does that mean for its sequence of objective functions as it gets smarter and smarter and how does it choose chooses uh in the future like Uh, How does it choose um, its own objective function? Um, And then the third one is kind of the merging of statistical um, fuzzy correlation-based reasoning with uh, logical mathematical discrete types of reasoning. Uh, And how do you merge these two in a principled way? Um, And I think one interesting area there is to like give large language models, for instance, or, or other kinds of models, access to a Python interpreter and just have them learn how to code but then have them learn how to incorporate that back and forth. So if I asked you, like, it's kind of insane that you ask a large language model some simple multiplication question with large numbers, and it will give you a wrong answer. And in the process of messing up that uh, single multiplication, it will have done billions of multiplications of floating point numbers right but it just couldn't quite translate the natural language into like that's what it actually is but if it had access to a calculator and it could just do it right away and like why shouldn't it like why couldn't it just learn how to program whenever it needs to but like, that's one direction of how to merge these two uh kinds of fields and you know some people think it's neurosymbolic and stuff there's a lot of um a lot of complexities there on, on how to scale these systems and make them actually work. Um, and so that is still a lot of interesting uh, research that can be done. Those are just three examples. I could talk about that forever, but I'm trying to wrap it up. So, um, uh, And then in the application area, there's just so many different use cases uh, of AI um, across any industry out there. And it's it's helpful to choose an industry that you're passionate about and then just think about any of the processes they have see if you can learn a lot about the domain and then use your ai knowledge uh to influence those processes and make them much much more efficient um you know it can be anything from recruiting um like my my wife she just started um moonhub um which is like a for a recruiting company uh super clever tons of repeatable processes you can find better candidates with ai Uh, and then communicate with those candidates more efficiently through AI and all of that. Um, And then, you know, you can, at AIX Ventures, my venture fund, we invested in a company that reduces the methane production in cows based on uh, influencing their diet. And methane is, you know, over 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon. So you can sell the carbon credits uh, better uh, when you reduce the methane from the cows. And like, there's just so many examples like that, right? Like there's so many processes in the world that are repeatable that you could make better, uh, with AI, um, that it'll be just fun to choose one that you're passionate about, uh, and then, and then try to hack up a prototype and iterate, um, and, and try stuff or, you know, join a large organization that, uh, you know, it, it sort of depends. Most people will kind of fall in some spectrum of, variance, uh, and certainty of outcomes that they need. Um, and you know, some people don't have the luxury to just try something really hard and crazy because they need to make money right away, or maybe even support uh, a family or something. And just trying to large, like the less and less risk you want, the larger and larger the organization is that you want to join. Um, and, and the more and more risk, no, no, rarely people want risk, right? They want the upside from the risk, but the more upside you want and the more risk you're willing to take, uh, on the smaller the organization is all the way from founding your own company to joining, you know, a company that's just uh, like smaller and smaller or bigger and bigger. Yeah. Depending on where you fall uh, on your own risk profile uh, and, you know, risk and reward profile, I guess. And so yeah, we're, we're going to hire a bunch of people and you.com too. So if you want to work on, you know, large language models um, and, and search and making that more of a kind of, Achievement engine rather than just a search engine. Um, we Would love to chat with you. Uh, so happy to reach out uh, if you want to start your own company uh, in the AI space. Uh, ping, uh, ping me at uh, you know uh, uh, about AIX ventures, and we'd love to support folks uh, that way. And um, yeah, otherwise happy happy to chat um, with with smart folks wanting to have impact on the AI.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to include some links for people who want to reach out. Well. Thanks. Richard, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and um, and just your responses today. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Likewise. Thanks so much. Great questions. Dived into a lot more detail. Hopefully didn't ramble for too
0: long. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.